0: This episode of The Art of Manly's Podcast is brought to you in part by Mizzen & Main. Mizzen & Maine makes dress shirts for men that are actually comfortable. They're well-tailored, so they fit comfortably. And they're made out of performance fabrics, same kind of stuff that gym clothes is made of. They breathe, stretch, and wick away moisture. They're machine-washable and wrinkle-free, which is really nice. Pulling out of the dryer, good to go. So ditch the dry cleaner start wearing a dress shirt that's comfortable. You can visit Mizzen & Maine at www.comfortable.af or MizzenAndMain.com. Take you to the same place. Use code MANLY at checkout to receive $10 off your order. Mizzen & Maine. It's never felt better to look your best. One more time, comfortable.af, code manly for $10 off. Check it out today. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Why do people sometimes fall in love with someone who is all kinds of wrong for them? Their friends and family see lots of red flags about their partner, but they themselves miss these warnings entirely, sometimes to catastrophic consequences. My guest today argues that these kinds of errors in relational decision-making happen when someone lets his heart rule without also heeding his head. His name is John Van Epp. He's a counselor and the author of the book, How to Avoid Falling in Love with a Jerk. We begin our conversation discussing what society's default template for creating a successful relationship looks like like and how it leads people astray. John then defines what makes a jerk a jerk and the signs you're dating a jerk. He then explains why it is that people so often miss these signs by using a model of how attachment develops in a relationship. And I think this model is super useful in understanding relational dynamics and you don't want to miss it. We then discuss why men need to do a better job in helping pace relationships instead of only letting women set the tempo. And we enter a conversation discussing the things you need to know about a person that you're forming a relationship with, including the relationship skills, family life, and values before you escalate your commitment to them. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash All
1: right, John Van Epp, welcome to the show. It's very exciting. Thank you so much for having
0: me. So you are a counselor. And you've written a book called How to Avoid Falling in Love with a Jerk, a foolproof <laughs> Way to Follow Your Heart Without Losing Your Mind. So this book, How to Avoid Falling in Love with a Jerk, it's based on a, a marriage program or a premarital program you developed called PIC. What is PIC and what issues
1: are you trying to address in this uh, program? Yeah, so way back in the mid-90s, I developed the concepts, kind of worked it through and put it in a certification course where people could get certified to actually go out, get our workbooks, get this training and facilitate it in their own respective locations. So that was kind of my multiplying my efforts. So it's not me doing all the work. And it really took off. We started to have singles organizations, the military grabbed it as we headed into the 2000s, social agencies, community initiatives that had federal and state grant money and By the time we reached the end of of 2000s and hit 2010-11, we had over a million people having gone through the program being taught by all these certified instructors. And in the middle of that, McGraw-Hill published the book. So the content of the book and then the course itself has a lot of overlap.
0: And and with the PIC program, is this for people like couples who are thinking about getting married or about to get married or even people who... Marriage isn't on the radar yet, but it's a plan later
1: on in life. Well, sure. So I, I think if if somebody is in a serious relationship, I, I think this would be really great material for them to go through. But I really, to be honest, it was designed to go what I call upstream. I, I wanted to reach pre-relational people, people that were just maybe had been in a relationship or young people even or divorced people that came out of relationship and they were just kind of saying, Hey, we need a better template of what to get to know about somebody and how to build a healthy relationship. Because the template we've used or the template we've learned just isn't really effective or it's not worked. And so that was really my target audience. And and it's been that way. We've had over a hundred thousand kids in public schools go through the PIC program with, with, you know, instructors coming into the school systems and teaching it. And that's been pretty cool. So it's pretty far upstream. And then, you know, we've worked a lot with adult singles of all ages. So, um, I think that that's really the primary place where I'd really like to see your listeners. Say hey, let's look into this even more. You know, I'm not interested in a serious relationship right now. Okay, good. You are the very person that I want to look into this material and think about it and take it because now is the best time pre relationally.
0: Well, I think it's interesting you you you're, you're teaching this stuff to high school students because this is like important stuff like your your marriage, your relationships. Like one of the biggest things that have the biggest impact on your life, yet we don't really talk we don't talk we don't teach kids like what they should look for in a partner so you mentioned we have a template that we kind of fall back to because we don't get this sort of intentional instruction what does that template look like and why isn't it not effective
1: yeah so the the template that people fall back on is usually what i consider to be several different unanalyzed beliefs that tend to drive the the culture at large one is Intuition. I'll know when I know, you know, when I'm, when I'm in with somebody, it's kind of the click factor. As soon as things click with me and this person, and I'll just know when I know I, nobody needs to teach me anything. I, I just kind of figure it out and I know it intuitively. The second, and that doesn't work. There are some people that perhaps do have that innate ability, but the vast majority of people don't have that good of, of judgment, or, or you might say they haven't been trained to have their intuition function at such a high level of really knowing and being able to predict long-term relationship potential of, a, of an individual that they have some kind of chemistry or attraction to. A, a second, I would say, template that's used is the belief that relationships that are healthy or good or It's kind of a dichotomy. It's either healthy or unhealthy, good or bad, you know, functional or dysfunctional. And they have this dichotomy, and they believe that if it's on the positive side of the dichotomy, they're good, they're healthy, they're functioning, then a relationship just runs itself. You know, if if I have to work at it, that must mean something's wrong with it. And that concept, anybody that has ever had a long-term relationship, a friendship even, knows that unless you have some kind of concerted effort, ongoing energy investment into the relationship, the relationship tends to start deflating. And so, but still, we, we believe this. We believe it more about a romantic relationship than any other. I'll just know when I know the click factor. It's in my intuition and... If it's really good, it just kind of does its own thing. It just goes at its own pace and it runs itself. And I don't have to have any kind of training, information, involvement. And, you know, it's kind of like asking people, when do you feel is the right time to have sex? A lot of people just say, well, you know, I'll just kind of know when I know and when it feels right. And it's that intuition. And, you know, the relationship will just kind of go there when it's the right time to go there as if the relationship is this thing outside of myself and the other person. And I don't have any involvement in pacing how this relationship develops. Those two things I found were extremely detrimental and they left lots of burned, crashed relationships in people's histories. And actually then all of those hardship experiences get brought into the next relationship and complicate things even more. So we kind of came up with a a different way of getting to know somebody and building a relationship and actually being more informed and intentional. And we found it to be way more successful of all ages, by the way. So you
0: mentioned uh, that intuition can result in people. If they're not lucky, they might luck out, but typically they don't. Just relying on intuition and lead to you to end up falling for a jerk. So, for definitions, how do you define a jerk? What makes a jerk a jerk in a marriage or a relationship?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would, I think the starting point, Brad, is all of us at one time or another act like jerks, right? Can, can, can you admit that as well? Yes. Okay, <laughs> well, you didn't elaborate on it. You know, we probably everybody would like to hear a story too from you, but we'll we'll go on. I'm sure they we'll would let you off the hook. But I'll say for myself, you know, I've made very jerk decisions over the. I'm I'm in my 60s now, and so been married for 40 years, and in my relationship with my kids, my wife. I mean, we all make mistakes and errors. So the word is not trying to say, first of all, that you got to find a person that is perfect. The second thing I would say about what the word is not saying, these are kind of disclaimers, is that the word is not saying that the that, that jerks are a particular gender. We'll call it, we, we all, gender neutral. No matter what you are or how you define yourself, as a human being, everybody can act like a jerk. But I would say there is a marked difference between acting like a jerk and what we will say is being a jerk. So, a couple things. First, I'll just say some simple signs of jerkiness is lack of clear insight into how their behavior is impacting other people that they're in a relationship with that makes people a little jerky. They can some people have that insight but they don't have any real care about how they're you know they're like wow you know you made somebody really feel bad well that's their problem they you know i'm not responsible for their feelings so there's either lack of insight or care about how my words or my actions impact others i think a a second kind of sign or or warning flashing signal that this person could be a bit jerky is if they're really lacking, woefully lacking, some relationship skills, like the skill of, of empathy or the skill of apology—how to admit their, you know, their faults and to talk things through—woefully uh, lacking communication or how to handle conflicts, and so there's these warning signals. But I, I would say. We could probably spend this entire time making a list of all of the things that people can do that would be, you know, throw them in a category of acting like a jerk. But the bottom line of being a jerk is they have a persistent resistance to addressing and actually changing whatever gets put on the table is bothering others. So in other words, when you're in a relationship with somebody, one of the key areas to kind of look for, it's a it's more, I call it a global characteristic of a person, is do they have the change factor? Do they have the ability to have insight into themselves, see something that kind of keeps repeating as a pattern and bothering you? And when it gets put on the table and you talk about it, they actually take it to heart, they take responsibility, and they do something to make a change. That sounds simple, but there are a lot of people in relationships that are unwilling to address issues that a person's put on the table or maybe multiple people put on the table that, hey, this is something about you that offends others, bothers others. i really like to try to change this. Well, and they have um, a defense resistance to that. So I would just start with a very kind of simple definition of the difference between acting like a jerk versus being a jerk is whether a person has the change factor. They have a willingness to be open and receptive to something about themselves that that needs to be addressed and changed. And they put in some concerted effort to do it. Well,
0: and the problem you highlight in the book is that people don't Typically, realize they're in a relationship with a jerk, someone who's you know has jerkiness qualities. Till months in, a year in, and by then they're so entwined in the relationship that it's like hard to get out. And you're like, man, how did I get into this? Like, how did I miss this when I was first started dating this person?
1: I um, call it the head and the heart need to work together, and accelerated bonds. So when you get into a relationship, there's something that is attracting you. There's there, It could be a kind of a sexual chemistry. You could be really attracted to the person. It's, if it's got some romantic aspect to it, then you would expect that there's some kind of, a, a, of attraction and hopefully it's mutual attraction. And that is like a magnet pulling you toward each other. But then there are bonds, major bonds that I say exist in every relationship, whether it's romantic or not, that I put together in a tool that we call the relationship attachment model. It's, it's this kind of graphic that's going to date me if I call it a graphic equalizer. But if it's a, if you think of a soundboard with sliders that go up and down, it is depicted, these bonds that occur in all of our relationships are depicted as a, a slider. And they can have a very low level and they can move up to a very high level. And what I say is there's somewhat of a progression. People don't realize which bonding factor, which, which aspect of the relationship is going up really high, but they get into a relationship and some of those areas of connection in the relationship, what I call these bonds, some of them go up super fast, almost superficially. And they don't fully know the person. So the, the no is actually the first of the five sliders, how much I know this person or they know me. And that might be actually very low, but their trust or their reliance or even their touch in terms of just attraction and so forth, or even getting involved sexually, those things can go up super fast, create premature feelings of bond and closeness. Why Why are they premature? well they're premature because my my bond is greater than what i truly know about this person so i don't know if they're a jerk or not a jerk i don't know what the patterns are of how this person's going to act i know how they've treated me i know what we've experienced together in the in the 6 weeks we've been seeing each other and now we're sleeping together and i'm kind of like dropped my friends and i'm spending the bulk of my time so another slider in in this model I developed is called rely, how much I depend on this person or how much I've kind of put into a sense of them depending on me or me depending on them, how we're meeting each other's needs. So we're a lot of my needs are now all getting funneled into this relationship with this person of six weeks. And if you go to my trust, which is another level, that is like all the way up because I Everything's been good so far. For six weeks, everything's been good. But my no is locked into actually time. And you can't get to know the patterns of a person until there's been enough time for certain things to surface. And then a pattern by definition is something that keeps repeating. So there has to be additional time beyond its surfacing for something to actually repeat. Well, six weeks, a lot of times is not enough time for even somebody in a relationship to get mad at you. So you don't even know how they're going to treat you if they're mad at you. So here you are sleeping with them, channeling a lot of your needs and the reliance and your belief in them, your trust belief is way up and that yet your no is really low. And that is the norm for how many, many people today are building relationships, and it really is a recipe it's a it's a potential recipe for catastrophe because as your no goes up a little more and you're around the corner of what we call the 90-day probation period right when things are really starting to surface that didn't surface in the beginning and maybe some things are starting to repeat so you're starting to see a few patterns all of a sudden you hit this three-month mark, this 90-day, and all of a sudden you'd be like, I thought I knew this person, but I'm really wondering, do I really know them? And people are shocked as if they they thought they fully knew them, but their, their knowing wasn't high on that level. It was their trust. It was their rely and dependence and, and meeting each other's needs, and it was their touch was super high. So, I can explain that model a little more in in kind of a, a more organized way, but just answering your question, why do people get involved, all of a sudden realize, I thought I knew this person, they seemed great, but now they look like a jerk. It's because our definition of a jerk was they're not acting like a jerk 24-7. It's that there is a repeating pattern that doesn't surface Typically in the beginning of a relationship, but over time begins to surface and when addressed, does not change and starts to have major defenses on it changing. So accelerated relationships are the norm. They've been the norm for a long, long time. You know, I I was <laughs> growing up in the 70s and accelerated relationships were happening when I was in high school back in the seventies. And so uh, all of those decades, ever since accelerated relationships have just become more and more the norm. But I think that they are a very unwise way and a very risky way that we do relationships. And we need to talk about guys for a minute. So I'll let you keep asking questions, but I, I do want to kind of speak directly to guys as stepping up, being pacemakers of relationships rather than saying, guys, will just do whatever women let them do. Well, yeah. So, I mean, let's talk about sort of summarize this relationship attachment model because I thought it was a very useful
0: tool for people. So, the idea is you know, there's these five sliders, which you call bonding areas. And the first one is no. Then you said trust, rely, commit, and touch. And the way you talk about it in the book is that in a relationship, you, you have to go through these in a progression right you 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 can't go too fast like you said you can't accelerate to touch before you get to know the person cuz that's just going to lead to disaster or commit like there's a lot of people who end up living moving in with somebody but they don't really know them and they find out the person has lots of debt and they're like oh my gosh I didn't know you or like you've been in jail I did not know you've been in jail and like <laughs> and and so th- that's why you want to make sure you know and like I think the big takeaway I got from that is that you never want to go for- further in one bonding area than you have gone in the previous so, like, you never want to go, say, if you're still in the no period of a relationship, you don't want to overcommit or overrely or overtrust before you get to know that person better.
1: That's a very, very perfect description of it. So, if people are kind of imaginative, they can imagine in their mind this image of five sliders going up and down. And what you just said is no, starting from the left, it would be no and then trust, and then rely, and then commit, and then touch. And exactly what you said, they, they're they representative of a piece of the whole of what a relationship is. A relationship is the interaction of these five areas, how much I know somebody what my know, how it interacts with how I trust them, how that interacts with how they meet my needs or I meet their needs and how we rely. And these things are like two-way streets. So you can get a little more complicated with the model and say it's not just how I know them, but how I have let them get to know me or how they trust me and I trust them. So they they do have a little more complications. We start thinking of them as two-way streets, but they they are pieces of the whole And when you think of a brand new relationship, any relationship, there's just an intuitive wisdom to not let a level go higher or faster or develop in a greater way than any of the levels to the left. So you're right. If the no is kind of low then I shouldn't have my trust go significantly higher than what I know somebody. If I'm trusting somebody way beyond what I know them, it definitely puts me at risk. But even if my no is up a little bit, if my trust isn't fully developed and I step into, like you said, uh, moving in with them, that makes my commitment really high. We have lots of interesting research, literally, I, I don't know if if everyone knows this, but there have been over a thousand research studies on moving in together outside of marriage. These are, I'm talking about in academic journals. They don't have any particular, you know, religious, they're they're almost always out of university settings. But, and then there are, because there's so many research studies that have been done, there have been what they call um, meta studies, which then take, you know, all of the research that was done from like 1980 to 2015, and let's take all of the research and group it, you know, on cohabitation in unmarried relationships. So unmarried people moving in together. Let's take all of that research for those last 15 or 20 years, whatever, whatever the meta-study is looking at. Basically, a summary of it confirms this logic, this intuitive logic of my model, that the people that move in together are forming a reliance way higher than their trust, typically, and way higher than what they know somebody. So the no-trust, rely, commit, touch progression, their rely is really high, their touch is really high, their commitment is kind of skewed. They they don't want to go to a full commitment of marriage, which truly is, historically— the greatest commitment. It is, it is, you know, we are going to commit together to be together as a union for life. That's been the historic definition of what marriage is. So it, it is the highest and they, they're not ready for that, but their rely is really high. Their commitment is, is a little bit crooked, you might say, and mid range. Their touch is all the way to the top. Their trust is mid range because they're not quite sure. If they can believe everything good about this person, but they have enough to move in together and their no, even though they might say their no is really high, there's a ton of things that they don't know about each other. With all the research in the meta-analysis, as well as most of the individual studies, you can't really find any good research that says this approach of moving in and then eventually getting married is producing better marriages. But there is a lot of research that says the breakup rates are significantly higher than the breakup rates in marriage. And you might be like, well, that's good. So they move in together, they realize it's not going to work out, and they break up. But we also find the after effects of those breakups can be more similar to the after effects of divorce (laughs) than ever realized. And so people are thinking this is like a no fault, no risk approach to checking out a relationship and they move in and their hearts are bonded and they're living together and their rely is really high. And, and maybe they see problems and because their reliance is so high and, and they bought a house together, they're living together and they, both put money out and bought a house now their dependence their co-interdependency has just moved significantly up or they bought a dog together even that or in the millennial generation which is what maybe 22 23 years old to 38 years old now having a having a kid when you're not married in that generation is now over 50% it's 55% and just a quick stat they looked at these moms that are having kids when they're not married and they asked them, How many of you are going to eventually marry the father of your child? Well, it was around 70% said, Yeah, you know, we're going to marry the father of our child. They did a five year follow up with these millennial moms and only 16% five years later had married the dads. And over 50, it was actually 65-plus percent had moved on to another guy. So just think how complicated life is becoming. So I, 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 I am elaborating on what you said, but there is an intuitive logic that says, as you get to know somebody, and we can talk, Brett, about what does it mean to get to know somebody, what are the key areas, but as you get to know somebody, let the ceiling of how much you truly know them, let that set the ceiling of your trust. And as you are getting to know them and, you know, checking out your trust based on that, we call it the three T's, by the way, you got to talk. So that's good to get to know them and build trust. But second T is you've got to be together in various situations and moods and you know, kind of states of life, you know, when they're stressed or when they're angry or when they're, we already said, when they're mad at you. This togetherness and diverse moods and settings takes the third T, it takes a lot of time. So if you let your know set the ceiling for your trust and how you know and believe in them, as that's getting tested out, you keep pulling back your reliance to, to keep a little bit of a balanced life, not overly investing the same with your commitment. And if you pace it that way, and then you do everything you can to hold your physical involvement with them in check. I, I know everybody's like, man, just you got to, you got to jump in the sack and check things out right away. But all research from biological to psychological and social finds that jumping in the sack with somebody, even in a hookup, creates chemicals in the brain that prompt a sense of connection and bond. And so we're creating bonds that don't match the other kind of areas of the relationship. And this skewed kind of like sense of I'm, I'm bonded to them I can't stop thinking about them. I'm spending my time with them, but this other area is not fully developed like how much I know them, whether I can fully trust them. These areas are not fully developed. Whether they really will meet my needs in responsible ways or whether whether they will be kind of more self self-running and self-focused and and I and I didn't realize that for the first few months doing a relationship with the logic of the relationship attachment model, that kind of intuitive logic, don't let a level go higher than the previous to the left. That has saved a ton of people heartache and decisions and helped them to kind of use it as, I call it a relationship GPS system to help them navigate their relationship in a, in a way that is wise and safe and actually very rewarding.
0: We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. The Strenuous Life is an online platform that we created to help you turn your intentions into actions. We've done that in a few ways. We First, we created a series of 50 different badges based around 50 different skills. There's hard skills like self-defense, wilderness survival, outdoor skills, soft skills like public speaking, social skills, personal finance, how to be a better husband, better father. We also provide accountability for you for your physical activity every day, doing a good deed so you're starting to think outside of yourself and thinking about something bigger. And then we also provide weekly challenges that are going to put you outside of your comfort zone physically, intellectually, socially, and besides the uh, weekly challenges and the the daily check-ins and the badges. TSL platform also provides a way for you to get together with other TSL members in your area so you can meet up in actual physical space and start doing stuff together. And the guys, the meetups are, it's a ground up thing organizing it themselves. Some events are really simple just to get together for a ruck for an hour, but then other groups are planning these multi-day events where they're doing all sorts of stuff, camping outside and working on TSL stuff together. So it's a real community that's been formed here. If you'd like to get in our next enrollment, head over to strenuouslife.co. You can see everything that's involved with the Strenuous Life and then make sure you get your email on our waiting list. That will help you be the first one to know when enrollment opens up. strenuouslife.co. Check it out and make sure to get your email on our waiting list. And I hope to see you in one of our next enrollments for the Strenuous Life. And now back to the show. So earlier you mentioned uh, you want to talk about guys being kind of taking taking charge and being a part of this pacing of it. So talk to that. Why, what role
1: does a guy have in a relationship in pacing the relationship? Yeah, this is. Uh, I mean, this has been. So I had a counseling practice. If I back up in Northern Ohio for twenty five years, and it was a it was something that just bothered me so much. And then after, you know, designing programs, so we have a lot of programs now, I don't have a private practice anymore, but we have a lot of programs that have been trying to do more preventative than remedial work. Obviously, a counseling practice does a lot of remedial work trying to fix something that broke. And like now I want to just help people try to avoid things breaking down by making better decisions on the front end. One of the things that always just kind of got me was this sense that respecting what a woman wants and what she's willing to to do in our relationship is the role of the man. He is just to be thoughtful and respectful and not pressure her in any kind of way. And if he does that, then that is enough to be... You know, an outstanding, you know, art of manliness guy. Okay. And, and I'm like, okay, that is all good, but that's not good enough. The man should, he, he should be selective about who he's getting involved with. He should have some criteria of what he wants from a female and what he doesn't like in a female. And he should definitely, have some kind of a value system about how to intentionally pace the acceleration of the relationship. And if she is like, on the third time they're hanging out together, she's like, hey, why don't you come up to my apartment? He He's like, are you sure? Is that okay with you? That's great with me. That permission that she is giving doesn't remove the responsibility he has of saying, hey, I'm pacing this relationship and I'm going to tell her, I, you know, I think this is kind of early to be jumping in together and, you know, you know, I'd like to, man, I'm attracted to you. I find it's, it's an exciting conversation to even talk about this, but, you know, I'm going to hold back because I really think that if we do this relationship differently, we might be able to to either develop a really great relationship and see where it's going. And and that's going to be a totally, it's just going to be a totally different landscape if we do this relationship a little differently. And I'd love to talk about why that's important to me. I just found even parents didn't teach their boys that this is a responsibility of a young man or an older man A middle-aged man, it doesn't matter. This is a responsibility of the man in the relationship, not just the woman. And so forever it seems like women were the gatekeepers of any kind of sexual involvement. And they were, it went beyond that. They were actually not just the gatekeepers, but the relationship managers. This is a big problem in marriage. A lot of wives want their husbands. To join with them and be relationship managers. Hey, why don't you plan a date? Why don't you think about something that'd be fun to do? Why don't you look at what we need in our relate? Why don't you come to me and say we got to improve our communication? Why am I always the one doing all this? Well, it goes all the way back to how boys are raised and boys are raised to not be relationship managers and to not be the gatekeepers of the physical sexual area of a relationship. And so I say we've got to up. The kind of the responsibility and the, the empowerment of men in relationships. Men should be much more engaged and they should be much more kind of positive about taking this on. Like, hey, this is a, this is a good thing. I want to have some involvement. When my wife and I dated back at the end of the seventies, we met in college and we dated in college before we got married for a couple of years and, and you know, I'm I'm thankful looking back. I was very much a relationship manager, meaning, what do I mean by that? I I was thinking about, hey, what is going on in our relationship? Where are we? What are things we need to talk about? I would bring up topics. I would prompt things. It was a mutual. You know, we both did it. But I can remember even as a 19, 20 year old being very engaged in that way, and I definitely was thoughtful and we talked about what we were going to do in our physical relationship and what boundaries we were going to set and not do. And that that helped us to establish kind of a best friend relationship that has been foundational now for like I said over 40 years. So I, I just think that it's a it, it there's no way to get around that. And if we help men develop that sense of role in relationships. It empowers men and gives them way more sense of thoughtfulness and involvement than I think a lot of times they've had in the past. And women will appreciate it too. I I think so. And and what I would say if I mean if a guy's doing this well, so we're not talking about control freaks. So just to put a couple of disclaimers out there, we're not talking about control freaks. We're not talking about interrogation. We're not talking talking about authoritarian approaches. None of those things I'm talking about. I'm talking about just upping their involvement and being thoughtful about the relationship and actually engaging in the relationship on a regular basis from the very beginning all the way on into long term committed relationships. And absolutely, the, the partner will be very, very appreciative of it. And if, if not, then that, that guy ought to really step back and think about what does this say about this partner that doesn't like me getting involved? And taking some charge of this whole arena of, you know, what we do together, what we talk about, and what our physical relationship is like. What, what, what why is she like this? You know, what does that mean about her? Because I, I would say that's a red flag.
0: So yeah, that idea that you know, happy wife, happy life. That no, that's not good. It's probably going to lead to a lot of heartache and just
1: not having a good time. <laughs> happy wife. Well, if that if that is interpreted to be happy wife, happy life. So all that means is I can be totally passive. If that's the interpretation, then I agree that that's not a good, but if happy wife means, Hey, if I do, if I engage, if I've involved, if I'm helping to pace the relationship, if I'm managing it in, in a mutual way, if I'm thinking about what she needs as well as what I need, and we're putting those things on the table. And I'm, and I'm an initiator, not just a responder. And if I am doing those things, I would say you're going to have a much happier wife and a happier life as well. Because those are the things, if you read all the books, they'll all be saying the same thing. Guys need to step into that kind of involvement. And I'm just putting it upstream at the very beginning of a relationship, guys need to be stepping in and they need to be told this is a good thing for you to do. So let's talk about uh, kind of delve deep into the the no factor because in the book
0: you spend a lot of time in this no area of bonding because I think it's hard in the in the in the, the the dating arena today, oftentimes people are dating complete strangers. Like they meet at college. They're from, you know, their potential partners from Detroit. They're from California. It used to be like way back in the 19th century, like you grew up in the same hometown. Families knew each other generations. Like you, you you knew the person, not so anymore. So what does it mean to to know somebody in a relationship?
1: Yeah, you're so, you're so right. I I came across this book written right on the edge of the 1950s. So it was kind of coming out of the 40s, which was if you think back to history, that's you know World War Two, and we came out of the Depression, and all those things. And it was also the era where we had not quite yet stepped into the 1950s of suburbs. Right? People lived in the cities. And anyway, it's a it was the by Burgess, the leading sociologist of that time period, and it was a book on called I think Love, Marriage, and Courtship. It was a great little book I found. And I came across this study that in the 70 percentile, I don't remember exactly if it was 73 or 74 percent, but of the people in a study in the city of Philadelphia, people that got married, married somebody that they had lived within six blocks of. So 70, we'll say that up at the 75 percent. So three out of four people were marrying somebody that was in their neighborhood. And you're absolutely right. That is not really what's going on in this day and age. People are meeting online and building long term you know long distance relationships on a very very regular basis and meeting in different settings where they have come from you know backgrounds that are very diverse and the diversity is great i love diversity but understand diversity makes figuring out compatibility much more complicated it's not that relationships have become simpler. They've become more complicated. And yet the relationship information for what we're talking about being upstream has, I think, really been depleted. So, you know, the people guiding the process and friends and relatives and family, you know, it's just I know, all dropped off. And people are, are marrying much later, so they're more independent and on their own. And they almost become dependent on, you know, like assessments online. Like I'll take eHarmony and then I'll do this assessment and it will start helping me connect with people. And, and okay. So this is, this is where wisdom is found is in some kind of an online assessment. And I, I like things like that, but I think we need to go way, way beyond that. So empowering singles with key target areas to explore and talk about in their relationship. These are the most important areas to get to know. And we want you to, to understand them, to have some in-depth kind of information about them because you are the one running your relationship, not some online assessment. You're the one that is ultimately making decisions, not some algorithm. And so, We want you to be empowered with this so you can go into it. This really came out of, Brett, when I was in my private practice in the mid-90s. I was also teaching marriage and family coursework in graduate school. And I came across some research that had to do with characteristics of people before marriage and how they predict some kind of outcome after marriage. So, they, some of them were individual characteristics, some of them were kind of relationship characteristics, but they were things, basically, that you could get to know about somebody before marriage that predicted how that person seemed to function after marriage and what the outcomes would be. And I thought, I wonder how many research studies have been conducted on something about a person, you know, like unmarried characteristics that predict marriage outcomes. So I set myself, and that's really how this book came about, I set myself on the journey of collecting all of the research I could find that was about that. And I found hundreds of research studies that nobody had ever organized or cataloged, and I began to put them in categories and found that there were really five key areas that covered the the vast majority, almost all of this research. And so I put them in a, a little acronym and they became five core chapters of my book. So, and they are also in the, the PIC program and we have an online version so people can, they don't have to go to a live class. They could just jump online. We call it Head Meets Heart and it goes through the same areas, it goes through that relationship attachment model we've talked about goes more in depth into those five areas and then it goes very in depth into the five key areas to get to know about somebody that we're talking about right now and what
0: are those five key areas just as a summary
1: <laughs> okay so i'll I'll put them in the order of the book, so they're a little different order in in the programs, but in the book they 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 start with kind of what I thought would be. The logic, like you meet somebody and you, and you, and you start hanging out together. You know, we, we use the word dating as we've been talking, but I don't know who, who uses that word anymore. Relationships have become so undefined, which is like a whole nother topic. (laughs) But when I go on college campuses now and everything, they, they say if, if somebody is dating, they don't call it dating, they call it talking. So what, what are you guys doing? We're talking. So <laughs> that's what it is. So I just tried to be like, okay, what would be the logical progression of these five areas? And they're not, you know, it's not cut in stone and they're not like finish one and go to the other. But usually the first thing that you begin to see is what I call compatibility potential. So you see like you're talking to somebody and are we... It's that click factor that I mentioned earlier. It's that sense of chemistry. It's some commonality. And so I define three major areas of compatibility that I think go a lot deeper than just that initial. But I think that's kind of it. You know, do we, do we feel a little bit compatible with this person? And then the second major area is relationship skills. And so. You kind of figure that out. You know, how does the person talk? How does the person handle themselves with me? How do they interact with me in terms of their skill level? If you think of a relationship skill, if we want to define that, just think in relationships, there are activities that we do. We talk. We share, open up. That's all parts of talking. We. Plan things to do together. So there's activities, whether it's recreation, whether it's a project, whether it's work, we support each other. We make priorities. We meet each other's needs. That takes a lot. We can figure out what the person needs. I call it being a connoisseur of another person. You know, how, how much am I an expert on what this other person needs? Right. So these are activities. The proficiency of how good you are at a particular activity is your skill level. So skills are not some separate category of the activities that make up what we do in relationships. Skills are just the measure of proficiency that we have at doing that. So how good am I at talking and listening would start to fall into what we call a communication skill. So obviously You start hanging with somebody, you not only initially see this first category they said of how are we clicking, what's our compatibility, what's our chemistry, but then you also are doing activities together, and you start to see how good they are at these particular activities. Those two things, by the way, are not enough to really tell you what this person is like. They are important areas, but There are other areas that don't surface so quickly. And the third one is what I called a relationship scripts, how a person treats everybody else. Like what, forget about how they treat you. Think about how they treat a coworker or an authority figure or a you know their family or extended family or or how they treated an ex or how they broke up with that ex or how they talk about people you know a lot of times how they're treating me doesn't really match how they treat some other significant people in their life even maybe a, a stranger or somebody that is you know a waiter or waitress you know a service person sometimes how they treat these other people in other arenas is starkly different than how they treat me, but I like how they treat me, but, you know, so that's their business. But a lot of times those scripts over time start to get turned into the relationship and they start surfacing in the relationship. So they, they're not a good friend. They don't like pay a lot of attention to a person that they're quote friends with, or maybe certain family members, they kind of tune them out. They don't look very conscientious toward those people. And, and they never like pursue, like, shouldn't you call your brother or yeah, whatever, or your friend, you know, your friend always reaches out to you, but you never really reach out to them. And you see this kind of passivity in how they treat others, but that they're so involved with me and they're constantly with me and they're constantly talking to me and we've been together now two and a half months and man, I I don't even pay attention to their relationship scripts with others. Huge red flag because it's really likely that as you round the corner from three months into maybe 13 months passing your first year, all of a sudden, or maybe even second year, you start to see some of those relationship scripts are starting to become normative in how they relate to me. And that was, I could see it in the first couple months of our relationship, but I, I minimized it because I didn't think it had any significance. Compatibility, their actual skill level of relationship activities and, and things that they do, The scripts of how they treat others, their relationship patterns with others, that's number three. Now we start to get into the really deep stuff. What they learned, the the fourth one is what they learned and have taken out of their family upbringing. This is not easy to get to know in the beginning of a relationship because usually if we hear anything about family, we just hear some easygoing stories about families. But you have to look really hard family upbringing, whether it was adopted family a bi- you know biological parent family, a single parent family whether it whether it was an institutional a foster family or or they group home whatever everybody grew up and during those you know eighteen years, whatever period of time you want to say they were growing up they were in they were Experiencing and internalizing things from those family dynamics, from how the family related, how they were treated, and they become some of the strongest predictors of what they're going to then take out and, you know, reestablish in the families they establish or the relationships that they establish in their adulthood. So the, the fourth area is what I would say what they, Learned and took out of their family. It's not always what happened, but it's what they took out. And the final one, which is extremely important, and I haven't found anybody to talk about it but me. <laughs> and that's the conscience. People have a conscience. It's, it's the dynamic value system that operates in them, but there is, there's a relationship conscience. There is a sense of, Of not just right and wrong, but empathy is prompted by the conscience. The conscience is like that internal voice that monitors you as you are living life. It it tells you, stop, slow down, don't do that. If, um, I'll just mention a a show, you know, a lot of people at, at when Seinfeld was on and now they watch all the reruns, but Going to some of the writer, not just Jerry Seinfeld, but then Larry David and then the Larry David show. Well, if you, if you want to see someone that depicts what good old Sigmund Freud called a Swiss cheese conscience, I think Larry David is like the perfect example where sometimes he's super conscientious and then other times he's like so in your space. He's so inappropriate with somebody. But we all laugh at it, you know, if you like the show, if you don't like the show, please don't be offended. But, you know, there's a lot of humor there, but he is showing kind of that, that conscience that some things stick, some things just go right through, and he seems so uninsightful, unempathetic, and so forth. This doesn't always reveal itself right away. These five areas, how you and I click together, The key areas of our compatibility, how skilled you are in some of the most important areas of relationship activities like communication, problem solving, conflict, empathy, apologies, things like that. The third is, is, how do you treat other people? Because that's such a strong predictor of how you act in relationships in general, and it's probably going to come into our relationship. And then let's get deeper into our family stuff. What did you take out of your family? And then finally, deep inside of you, what is the maturity and the functioning of that conscience that is such a strong influence on how you live your life and then how you're going to ultimately relate to me in a relationship?
0: And this, like you said, it takes talking, it takes being together,
1: and it takes time, a lot of time, a lot more time than you think it's going to take. It does. And if I put those five areas back into that relationship attachment model, going from left to right is no. And then as a drop down box, just think about these five areas. What am I getting to know about compatibility? What am I getting to know about skills? What am I getting to know about their relationship scripts? What am I getting to know on a deeper level about their family and what they took out of it and how those experiences have shaped them? And what am I getting to ultimately know about their character and conscience and this, this inner side? And as I get to know those key areas, which definitely take time, you can't sit down with somebody and pull out a, a you know 101 questions <laughs> and say, well, we're While we're waiting for uh, dinner to come, I thought I would just kind of, you know, ask some questions here that came from this uh, podcast that was really interesting on how to avoid getting involved with a jerk. Now, I'm not saying you're a jerk, but let's let's go through these questions. I have 20 for each of five categories. You can't do that at that point. Larry David would do that. Larry David would do that, of course. But, but if you know these areas and in my book, I do have about 20, 25 questions for each of these five areas. So over a hundred questions. If you know the question, if you know the target areas and the questions, then as time goes on and it feels comfortable, these things can just become part of the fabric of how you're talking together. And as your no slowly goes up, it tells you how you can trust and believe in them. And it tells you. Uh, how much you can look to them and depend on them. And these three actually all interact, how they meet my needs, how I trust them, how they come through for me, what they share, what we talk about. And as they interact, they inform how invested I should become in my commitment and where I should set some boundaries in our physical relationship to touch.
0: Well, John, we've talked about a lot right now, but there's so much more we could talk about. I think we got to have you back on the show to discuss this more. But in the meantime, where can people
1: go to learn more about the book and your work? Oh, that'd be great. Well, first of all, I would love to come back on anytime. Just let me know. I'd be, I'd be glad to. And um, we have some free things, and then we have some things that can be purchased. And so let me just start with the book. So, I mean, they can just jump on Amazon and and find the book that way. That's no problem again it's published by mcgraw hill and it's called how to avoid falling in love with a jerk but if they also go to my love thinks like love l o v e thinks t h i n k s not stinks <laughs> but and it's my you know my love thinks because we say love should think it shouldn't not just be intuitive the head and the heart should work together so if they go to my love thinks They can get a lot of free resources. We have a whole library of free resources and we have a blog that's free that is always giving information. There is also, we have online courses and right there from my love things. They can click online courses. And if they use the code art of man, A R T O F M A N, art of man, they can get a 20% discount. On any of our online courses and the online course that goes with the content we've been talking about is called head meets heart. So it's about the head and the heart working together, obviously. And then finally, Dr. Morgan Cutlip, who happens to be my daughter. We work closely together. She's very involved in all this. She has an Instagram, my love thinks where she puts out daily relationship tips. She also does the blog that I mentioned on my love things. But if you go to at my love thinks. On Instagram, you can sign in and get these, you know, free resources just from her kind of daily tips. And they and they really are good. I think they're helpful. She kind of goes through the spectrum of singles on into committed relationships and marriage. Well, fantastic. Well, John Van Epp, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. It's been great talking to you.
0: My guest is John Van Epp. He's the author of the book, How to Avoid Falling in Love with a Jerk. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, lovethinks.com, not lovestinks.com. lovethinks.com. Also check out our show notes at awmis slash lovethinks, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years. A lot of things about relationships on there. Check that out. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the a1 podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout to get a, a free trial of Stitcher Premium. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the one podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, whatever platform 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 you use to listen to the podcast and if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who think we get something out of it. Shoot them a text. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you, not only listen to anyone podcast, but put what you've heard into action.